All right, guys, so before our break for uh, the Christmas and New Year's season, uh, we were getting right into our uh, study of the Minor Prophets. We did an introduction to all of the 12, and last time we did an introduction to Hosea. So we're going to get right into the book today. And so when you look at Hosea, you can divide it into two sections, okay? So Hosea, the first three chapters deals with his marriage and how God uses that to prophesy through it to Israel. Then what follows from chapter 14 through the end of the book is then is a series of oracles through the prophet Hosea to the northern kingdom. So today we're going to focus on Hosea, his wife Gomer, and God's heart. And so I, I think we're going to have some interesting conversation today because it's going to seem rather odd and unique to us in our culture. Why would he do that? You know, does God do this? You know, that that type of thing. So we're, we're going to talk about it today. So what I do want to, I do want us to read the this prophet together. So let me begin, first of all, with uh, chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 1. And by the way, let me, let me make a, a, a point to you. When these books were originally written, they were not written with verses or chapters. That was not introduced until a few hundred years ago. So they typically were just like, when you write a letter, do you break it up into, you know, verses, what do you want people to understand when you write a letter? So this was written, and there's no chapters here. This was introduced for, at that time, what they considered a modern reader, which is us even today, you know, and so forth. So the natural break in the discussion is going to be after verse one. And I'll show you as we go along. It'll be in your notes. The first break we're going to see is verse 1, which is the timing of the prophecy. So notice with me what he says. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Barry, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. All right, so let's stop. We'll go on and talk about what we need to right here. So the writer introduces the book as the prophecy given to the prophet Hosea, all right? So this is from Hosea. It was given to the prophet during the days of Uzziah and Jeroboam. So at the beginning of his reign, the northern kingdom had Jeroboam II as its king. The southern kingdom, Judah, had Uzziah as its reign. The writer then goes on and says that his ministry lasted up until the days of Hezekiah. Now remember, we talked about this last week. There were six northern kings in that time period, but they're not even mentioned. And that's because they were never really seen as legitimate. Because there was only supposed to be one line that was supposed to rule over Israel. Anybody know what that line is? Yeah, the house of David. That's right. And so when they split off and God allowed them to split off, he was going to let Jeroboam I and his descendants rule the northern kingdom, but he turned out to be an ungodly man who did evil in the sight of the Lord. 
And so because of that, his reign was cut short. And so they went through a series. Through the time of their existence, they went through a series of kings. So this is what we see here. We see the southern king from the house of David, but the beginning, the only king that's mentioned is Jeroboam II. All right, so now let's look at chapter verse 2 through chapter 2, verse 1. I'll read this to you. When the Lord began to speak by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of harlotry and the children of harlotry, for the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Deblema, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel. For in a little while I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu and bring an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. It shall come to pass in that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. And she conceived again and bore a daughter. And God said to him, Call her name Lo-Rohamah. And I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. Yet I will have mercy on the house of Judah and will save them by the Lord their God and will not save them by bow nor by sword or battle by horses or horsemen. When she had weaned Lo-Rahamah, she conceived and bore a son. Then God said, Call his name Lo Am I, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. And yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall shall be said to them, You are sons of the living God. Then the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and appoint for themselves one head and shall come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. And say to your brethren, my people, and to your sisters, mercy is shown. All right, so let's talk about this. We're going to talk about the symbolism of Hosea's marriage, the symbolism of Hosea's marriage. So first of all, the Lord tells Hosea to take an adulterous woman as his wife. She is called a woman of harlotry, so she was probably she becomes a prostitute. We'll find that out here soon. But she's obviously a woman who wasn't very faithful to one person. Okay, so he is told by God to take this woman as his wife. Now, this marriage was to portray Israel's unfaithfulness to the covenant with the Lord. So this was supposed to portray Israel's unfaithfulness. So they made a covenant and said, Lord, we're going to worship you. We'll worship no other gods. 
And God said, okay, but if you do this, this is what's going to happen. But as long as you do worship me, you'll be blessed. If not, you'll be cursed. And so, but Israel, we know from their history, has not, has not gone along with that covenant at all. They always go straying off. Other lovers is what God will refer to them as here in this passage. So this is marriage is supposed to illustrate this greater point. All right, so now I'd like to know your thoughts, your feedback, because this seems unusual in our culture. So how do we wrap our brain around God telling someone to do this? Anybody? Anybody got a thought? Uh, yeah, it might be, yes. Yeah. Yeah, yes and no, Bruce. Yeah, I can see what you're saying, so I'll, I'll explain to you why it's not unusual, okay? Anybody else got a thought? Are you bothered by it? Maybe I should ask that question. How many of you are like, ah, I don't know what to, I don't know what to think about that. It gives you a different perspective. Lori says she's admitting, yeah, that bothers her. Okay. <clears throat> Anybody else? Okay, he is, yes. Okay. Okay, yeah. Now, but we've seen this before, though. Remember, with I think it was, uh, I think it was Isaiah. Maybe I'm thinking of getting all my major prophets mixed up. But one of the other prophets was told to rock, walk around naked for more than a year, and it was supposed to be an illustration of how they would go to, in, into exile. Or one of the prophets is told, lay on your side for a whole number of months and cook your food with uh, buffalo chips. No, with the, with the manure of cows that's dried out. And then after a few months, you can turn over on the other side. Okay? And that was all to be an illustration. So are we bother, does it bother you that God may ask you to do something that seems unusual, weird, and not something that we would be okay with? Okay, Tim says yes. Lori was kind of bothered. Anybody? Yes. Okay, that's good. Yeah. Okay, all right. That's good, Bruce. That, that leads into it. So let me explain to you the culture. We live in a culture today where you choose your bride. Or you choose your groom, right? How many of you consult your parents as to who you should marry? You actually say to them, hey, mom, dad, it's time for me to get married. Find me a gal. Do we do that in our culture? No, we don't have arranged marriages in our culture. That's not a part of our culture. We have what we call dating, right? where we date a person and get to know them and so forth. All right. What we have in our culture did not exist in their culture. Marriage in their culture 
was not necessarily was not necessarily based on love. It was based on arrangement. And you were told who to marry. So for him, he's probably at an advanced age anyhow. When I say advanced age, he's not in his 20s, okay? Maybe in his 30s or 40s. You have to understand average lifespan might be 60 years, okay? So he's at an advanced age. And so at that point, you have somebody tell you who to marry. It just so happens that God tells him who to marry. Marry this woman who is adulterous. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so he is obedient in doing that. Now, let's also remind ourselves of the culture where in, for us, we don't operate by, in their culture, they had to, they, the, the picture, they weren't in a written culture. They were in a more verbal uh, culture where things, symbols mean more than in our culture. In our culture, if it's in writing, we, we grasp it. That's not true in their culture. So what happens with is you symbolize through things to communicate truths. And so God is symbolizing through this marriage a truth, both a condemnation and then what we're going to see is a restoration, a love. And he does it through this. This is totally opposite of what we would do today. Do you know what I'm saying? We, we, we would totally be like, you know, what, what's the deal? You know what I'm saying? Why, we would say that person's crazy for doing that in, in our culture. You know what I'm saying? But in their culture, it was normal. Especially if somebody was recognized as a prophet. As a prophet. So here it is. God wants to use his marriage to Gomer as a illustration of unfaithfulness. Now, why Gomer? Well, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, idolatry and adultery are connected. God views Israel's adultery as as excuse me, Israel's idolatry as adultery. Unfaithfulness and so he'll often use illustrations to point that out. He'll describe these other fake gods as her lovers. You know, she's running after her lovers. And we're going to see that in this passage. So let me go on. Anybody have a question so far? So it's a cultural thing, all right? So Hosea responded in obedience and took Gomer, the son of... These Hebrew names are bad for me. As his wife, okay? So he took this woman as his wife. Now, they have three children. And these three children, again, their names, again, a cultural thing. So anybody want to tell me, how did you decide to name your children what you named them? So Bruce, I know you and Debbie have uh, three kids. What was the process in deciding what to name them? Okay, all right, two of them, biblical people, one was named after a month. Anybody else? How did you name your children? Okay, and after your grandparents? So there are a lot of different ways that we choose the way we name people. I mean, it's often in the news where people are using, 
weird, unusual names today, but that's our culture, right? But typically it's, you know, who was in the family. So I am named George Ray Cannon II. George was my dad's name. Ray was my dad's name, okay? But I also know in the Cannon family, there were other grandparents who were named George or Ray. And so it was typical to name your child to carry on that family name or whatever, right? Now, when Lori and I got married, we chose the name of our children, Hudson, Madison, Sawyer, and Foster. We don't have any of those names in our, in our clans, not in the Weaver clan, not in the Cannon clan, but we wanted to choose something unique to them. And we did, okay? We did. And, and that's how we did it. It's not the way in this culture. In this culture, names were given to communicate something, communicate what was happening at the moment. It was not because you were carrying on a family name, because names had meanings, okay? And we're going to see that here in a moment. So, so Gomer conceived and bore Hosea a son, all right? So the Lord told Hosea to name the son Jezreel. Now, Jezreel happens to be a city in the northern kingdom. All right? It happens to be a city in the northern kingdom. So the name reflects that the Lord was avenging the bloodshed of Jehu at Jezreel. So if you go to, and I think I give you the passage there, 2 Kings chapter 9, verses 27 through 28, okay? What happened there? Well, Jehu was told to kill the house of Ahab by the Lord. He's being punished for doing what the Lord told him to do? No. He went beyond what the Lord told him to do. What did he do? This is because Jehu attacked the house of David and killed Haziah, king of Judah. So he was supposed to wipe out the house of Ahab the ruler of the northern kingdom. But in his zeal for, quote, the Lord, or his bloodlust, he kills this king of Judah. We see that in 2 Kings chapter 9. But Isaiah, the son of the king of Judah, saw this. He fled by the road to Beth Hagen. So Jehu pursued him and said, shoot him also in the chariot. And they shot him at the ascent of Gore, which is by Ablim, and then he fled to Megiddo and died there. So he killed the king of Judah. So the Lord is avenging this, okay? So, and his servants carried him to the, in the chariot to Jerusalem and buried him in the tomb in the fathers and with his fathers in the city of David. So God is saying, I want you to name this child Jezreel because I'm going to avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel. I'm going to avenge the northern kingdom because they attacked who? The southern kingdom, the house of David. Now, why would that be really important to the Lord? Why this thing about the house of David? Why is it important to the Lord that he's got to avenge this? That's the bloodline. Anybody else want to add to what Bruce is saying? Remember, God said that we're all, he made a promise. There would always be what? a ruler for the house of David. And so here's Jehu. What does he do? 
Doesn't matter what God said. He's going to do his own thing, right? Kills Isaiah and God says, okay, I'm going to bring an end. So that's what he does. With this, he said, I will also bring the northern kingdom to an end. So he's making a pronouncement here that he's going to kill the north, he's going to destroy the northern kingdom, the ten tribes. The northern kingdom will be defeated in the valley of Jezreel. And by the way, when uh, the Assyrians defeated the northern kingdom, guess where it was? The valley of Jezreel. Okay? So Gomer conceived and bore Hosea a daughter. And this is where we get the unusual name that should be hit the top ten list of names for girls in America here soon, right? Uh, she, the Lord told Hosea to name the daughter Lo-Rohama, okay? Lo-Rama, okay? Unusual name. Here's what it means. The name Lo-Rama means no mercy. No mercy, okay? Why did he name the child that? Well, the Lord states that he will no longer have mercy on the northern kingdom. All right, so God is saying, I'm not going to have any more mercy on you guys. Listen, God put up a lot with him. Would you not agree with that? From one king after another, and they all did evil in the sight of the Lord, he put up with them to a certain point. That tells you about the patience of God, right? But then there comes a point where God says, okay, I've drawn a line, and, and I will not have mercy anymore. He states that he will utterly take them away in exile. So it's saying right here in Hosea, he's going to take them away. Take them away where? To a land that they don't know. He actually takes them, we know, from, uh, from 2 Kings to the land of the Medes in Persia, in what we would call Iran today, in exile to there. Okay? So in the ninth year of Hoshea, not Hosea, Hoshea, the king of Assyria took Samaria and carried Israel away to Assyria and placed them in Halah and by the Habar, the river of Gonza, in the cities of the Medes. So that's what the scripture tells us in 2 Kings 17. All right? So the Lord proclaims that he will continue to have mercy on the house of Judah. So here he is. Now remember, this is before, this is before the defeat of, this is like several kings before the defeat of the southern kingdom to Babylon. So we're a lot of years before that. God says, I have no mercy anymore on the northern kingdom, but I'm going to have mercy on the southern kingdom, Judah. Okay? So he says, I'm going to have mercy. I'm going to have mercy on the southern kingdom. He states that he will save them, but, but not by military might. He's going to save Judah, but it isn't going to be by military might. It isn't going to be by battle. It isn't going to be by horses or number of troops or whatever. He's going to save them. How do we know he did that? 2 Kings chapter 19, verses 32 to 36. Thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shield, nor build a siege mount against it. By the way that he came, by the same shall he return. And he shall not come into this city, says the Lord, for I will defend this city and save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. 
And it came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out and killed the camp of the Assyrians, 185,000. And when the people arose in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. Wow. Now, would you, oh, so wait, here it is. So Zanakarov, king of Assyria, departed and went away and returned home and remained in Nineveh. Now, would you say that God fulfilled that prophecy that he said he was going to protect them, but not by military might? Yeah. How do you defeat an army of 185,000? One angel. One angel goes through and kills them all. Unbelievable, right? Yeah, who gets the glory for that? God. Because it wasn't by any kind of military might, was it? Okay? wasn't by any military might. In fact, the scripture says, Zanakarib, when he returned, his sons killed him because of the defeat. And never again did the Assyrians try to come against Jerusalem. Would you try it again? No, I wouldn't try it, would you? They're probably still trying to figure out what happened, right? So God did that. All right, now, when Gomer had weaned Lohorama, she conceived and bore Hosea a son. Now, weaned, when is somebody typically weaned in our culture? Uh, Jane says a year. Others agree with that? When they're off the bottle, yeah, okay. Uh, you know what that is in their culture? Five to eight. Five to eight years old, yes. Why? Well, they're in a culture where you don't have a Goodman's. Do you understand what I'm saying? Where you can just, you, they're in a culture that probably where people are poor, and so you continue to nourish your children through yourself, because there's only so much food to go around. So it's a different culture. So this kind of gives you a time frame, how long after this child was the next child born. Okay, so probably where from five to eight years, she conceives and bore, bore Hosea a son. And the Lord told Hosea his name is Lo-Amai. Okay, Lo-Amai. Again, another usual, unusual name, but not necessarily in their culture. The name Lo-Amai means not my people. All right, now this is where you know, as I was studying this, this, I had to pause for a moment because what God is about to say here should bother us. What do you mean? Well, the Lord proclaims that the northern kingdom are not his people. Doesn't that bother you? I mean, they were, right? These are the children of Israel. These are the apple of God's eye. And he's reached a point where he says, you're not my people anymore. Wouldn't that bother you if God said to you, you're not my child anymore? Do you know what I'm saying? Here's what else he says. He also proclaims that he will not be their God. Okay, you want to go chase after other gods? Fine, great. I won't be your God anymore. You have them help you. <clears throat> and they couldn't help them, right? Well, because there were nothing. 
So while the Lord pronounces judgment, he does, here's what he does, he gives a promise to the northern kingdom. So this is what is always amazing to me. In the scripture, realize that with every judgment, there is always a promise. Okay? With every judgment, there is always a promise. All right? And so he gives them a promise. What does he promise? The Lord states that the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea. Now, where have we heard that before? Anybody remember where we've heard that? I mean, he made a promise to somebody years before this, centuries before this, when he told them, You'll see, your seed will be like the sand on the sea. Who was that? Anybody remember? Abraham, yes. So this goes all the way back to the original promise. God is bringing up the original Abrahamic covenant here, okay? And he's promising them, you're going to be like the sand of the sea. Now, here's what else. He proclaims that the same place where he stated they are not his people, they will be called the sons of the living God. He's saying to them, you know, in that same place where I said to you, you are no longer my people and I'm no longer your God, in that same place in the future, there's going to be a time when I say, you're the sons of the living God. Now, what does that communicate? That's exactly right, Bruce. Forgiveness. So what we see is in the earlier part where I'm no longer, you're no longer my people, you're no longer my God. That's God's anger at their what? Sin. And his judgment, you're, you're going to be punished, you're going to be taken away. But here's my promise, you're going to be numerous. And in the same place where I told you that you were not my people, you are now sons of the living God. Okay? Actually, Jesus quotes this passage. He quotes this passage to the Pharisees because they were upset with him being called the son of God. Remember he said to them, does it not say in your scriptures that you will be the sons of God? Who's he referring to? Hosea here, okay? Hosea. Now, he states that the children of Judah and the children of Israel will be joined together again and appoint a head. So one day, those two northern kingdoms, those two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, Israel in the north, and the southern kingdom, Judah in the south, will be joined together again, united again, and they'll appoint a head. They'll appoint a king. Okay, they'll appoint a king. So now we're going to come to chapter 2, verses 2 to 23. So let me read these to you, okay? Bring charges against your mother. Bring charges, for she is not my wife, nor am I her husband. Let her put away her harlotries from her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and expose her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and set her like a dry land, and slay her with thirst. I will not have mercy on her children, for they are the children of harlotry. For their mother has played the harlot, and she who conceived them has behaved shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers, who gave me bread and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up your way with thorns and wall her in, 
that she cannot find her paths. And she will chase her lovers, but not overtake them. Yes, they, she will seek them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband. Then it will be better for me than now. For she did not know that I gave her grain, new wine and oil, and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. Therefore I will return and take away my grain in its time, and my new wine in its season. And I will take back my wool and my linen, and given to cover her nakedness. For I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall deliver her from my hand. And I will also cause all her myrrh to cease for her feast days, her new moons, her Sabbaths, for all her appointed feasts. And I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, of which she has said, These are my wages that my lovers have given me. So I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall eat them. I will punish her. But for the days of the bales to which she burned incense, for the days of the bales to which she burned incense, she decked herself with her earrings and jewelries, and she went after her lovers. But me she forgot, says the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, and I will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. I will give her her vineyards from there, and the valley of Accor as a door of hope. She shall sing there, as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master. And I will take from her mouth the names of the Baals, and they shall be remembered by their name no more. In that day I will make a covenant with them with the beasts of the field and the beasts of the air and with all the creeping things of the ground, bow and sword of battle, I will shatter from the earth to make them lie down safely. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will answer, says the Lord. I will answer in the heavens. I will answer the earth. The earth shall answer with grain, with new wine, with oil. They shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the earth. And I will have mercy on her who have not obtained mercy. And then I will say to those who were not my people, You are my people. And they shall say, You are my God. All right, so what we see here is it sounds like it's talking about Hosea with his wife, kind of is, but it's also God talking about Israel, right? And her unfaithfulness, and so there is a judgment and a restoration. So let's talk first of all about Israel's punishment. The Lord calls for formal charges to be brought against Israel for her adulteries. So he's calling for formal charges to be brought for her adulteries. The Lord has proclaimed that she will go after her lovers, who she says provided for her. Now, isn't that a slap in the face? Who provided for Israel? Anybody? God did. But guess who Israel said provided for her? Her lovers, the false gods, the Baals. 
the Asheroth, the other gods, the Canaanite gods that they worshipped. That's a slap in the face, right? When you're the one who's providing, and the one that you're providing for says it's coming from somewhere else. They don't even acknowledge that it's from you. The Lord will bring judgment on Israel so that she finds no provision from her lovers. So what God says, look, I'm going to cut her off, and she's going to chase after her lovers, and she's not going to find them. They're not going to provide anything for her. So Israel did not know that God provided for her the things that she offered to Baal. Isn't that amazing? So the stuff that she's offering to Baal, God's the one who provided it for her. She's offering it to Baal, thinking it's Baal who gave it to her. The Lord will take away the provision as a judgment and expose her nakedness. The Lord will destroy her crops and punish the people for their worship of Baal. So he's going to punish them. He's going to take away the crops and he's going to punish them for their worship of Baal. By the way, Baal was a fertility god. In Israel at that time, it's a very agrarian culture. Agriculture is a big thing. Their gods were focused on agriculture. Baal was a fertility god. He was the rain god. He was the one who would bring rain to what? In a dry, arid place to bring nurture to the crops, okay? So they're offering the, you know, they're saying that their crops were coming from who? Baal. But it's God who gave it to them. So the Lord will initiate reconciliation. Now here's the promise. He says, I'm going to be the one. I will go and allure her. He's going to be the one to initiate reconciliation with Israel. The Lord will give her vineyards and she will sing as when she left Egypt. Do you remember when they left Egypt? They crossed over the, the Red Sea and the, and the army was killed. It, it records in scripture that when that took place, Israel, the women of Israel sang. You know, they sang a song. There's a song of Miriam there to announce the praise of what God has done. And so he's saying, you know, I'm going to give her back her vineyards and she's going to sing like she did before. Israel will express intimacy with the Lord by no longer calling him my master, but my friend. Now, our new King James, if you have a King James, it says my husband. The word there that is used actually has two meanings. It could be my husband or my friend. You could translate it my friend. Now, let me ask you a question. Anybody remember Jesus telling his disciples in the Gospels that you will no longer refer to me as your master, but as your what? What does he tell them they can call him? It's in John. Friend. Jesus tells them, friend, you can call me friend. Very much a fulfillment of what's going on here, right? So tell me something. How do you approach God? Do you approach him as master? Well, we should, right? Yes. But we can also approach him as what? Friend, right? That's intimacy. Intimacy here. That's what he's saying. It's going to come a point, he says to Israel, when I will bring you back and everything's going to be okay again, and you're no longer going to refer to me as... Master. 
You're going to refer to me with an intimate term, husband if you want, or friend. Okay, so it's talking about intimacy with God. Israel will no longer name the Baals, and she will remember them no more. God's saying, the Baal will no longer come out of your mouth. In fact, there's going to come a point where you're not even going to remember them anymore. That's great, isn't it? How do we know that? We know that from Revelation. Old things have, the old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. He'll wipe away every tear, remember? Hey, would everybody agree we live with regrets? Would everybody agree with that? What do we typically regret? The things that we did wrong? And no matter what we try to do, we can't forget it. There's going to come a day when you won't remember it anymore. Isn't that awesome? He's saying to them, look, you're worshiping Baal, but there's going to come a time where you're not even going to, Baal's not even going to come out of your mouth. You won't even remember Baal anymore. So the Lord proclaims that he will be betrothed to Israel forever. Betrothal here is not just an engagement, but it's kind of a marriage. He will be married to Israel forever. And the Lord will proclaim that Israel is his people, and they will proclaim that he is their God. So again, the opposite of what happens. Restoration. Now, we're going to look at the last five verses real quick. Chapter 3 is only five verses long. Then the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel who took other gods and loved the raisin cakes of the pagans. So, I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and one half homers of barley. And I said to her, you shall stay with me many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So too I will be towards you. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king and a prince and without sacrifice and sacred pillar without ephod or teraphim. Afterwards, the children of Israel shall return and seek their God and David their king, and they shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. All right, so let's wrap this up. We're going to see that Hosea's marriage is restored. And again, I'm going to help you understand some things culturally to understand what's going on here. So the Lord tells Hosea to go and love Gomer, who is committing adultery. Love her again. Take her back. Because obviously at this point, he had gotten rid of her. He had probably divorced her. Put her away. Now, so what does he do? Hosea was to do this just as the Lord has love for Israel who looked to other gods. Now, it also says they enjoyed the raisin cakes. The raisin cakes. That was something that they would offer to Baal. Hosea bought his wife back for a substantial price. What do you mean he bought his wife back? Well, let me explain to you the culture. In our culture, when you divorce somebody, 
Do they immediately go into poverty? They maybe go into struggles, but do they immediately go into poverty? In our, no, maybe they get an alimony or they get child support or something like that, right? There's something to sustain them. That did not exist in this culture. They didn't have a social network like we did. So if you were divorcing your spouse, you would get rid of her. Her family probably wouldn't take her back. So then she has to survive. And how do you survive? Prostitution. Selling yourself into prostitution, maybe. Selling yourself to somebody to continue to exist. So Hosea is told, go and take her back. But in order to get her back now, he's got to what? He's got to buy her back. He's got to pay a price. Do you understand what I'm saying? And he pays a substantial price for her. All right? He pays a substantial price to get her back. So Hosea tells Gomer that she will not return to her adulterous life and he will remain faithful as well. It's not that Hosea was the one who was unfaithful, but he's saying, I will be faithful to you. You stay faithful to me. So he's encouraging her, okay? Let me back up to that last point real quick. Who bought us back? Jesus did, right? Yeah, his love, he paid a substantial price for us, right? Isn't that a, a beautiful picture here? Okay. So the Lord states that Israel will live many days, uh, it should be without a king and temple worship. And they are. They're still to this day living without a king and temple worship, right? Yeah. But Israel will return and seek the Lord and David, their king. There's going to be a time, though, when it's all going to return back. They're going to come back. They're going to have temple worship again. They're going to see David, their king. Although it's not, it's the son of David. Who's that? Jesus. When is that? In the future, right? In the future. All right, and Israel will fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. All right, so that brings us to the end of chapter three. All right, so next week we're going to get into chapter four. I tried to cram all this into one section. We're probably going to have to spread it out a little bit because there are 11 chapters left, and we're not going to do all 11 in one week. 